a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Pam, you know, in Silicon Valley, a lot of people have the ambition of being the next Elon Musk or the next Reid Hoffman. Well, and nobody had that ambition, I think, more than Elizabeth Holmes, who dropped out of Stanford to start a company called Theranos, which is a kind of portmanteau word, you know, like brunch is breakfast and lunch. Theranos was uh, therapy and diagnosis. And she claimed that she was going to be able to perform the full range of medical tests that you get when you go to the doctor by collecting just a few blood drops from your finger rather than having them stick a, a needle into your arm and draw the blood out that way. Um, and she attracted an amazing cast of characters to back her up, ranging from Jim Mattis in his prior life before he became Secretary of Defense to George Schultz. But ultimately, the company failed ever to produce the machine that it was supposed to produce. And in March 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, charged the company with a $700 million fraud. Uh, And then Holmes was indicted uh, this past spring for wire fraud and for conspiracy. And our guest today is John Carreyou, a member of the Wall Street Journal's investigative reporting team. In 2015, John won a Pulitzer Prize for his work on Medicare and Medicare fraud and abuse. And shortly after that, he was sitting in his office and he heard a tip about this company. I'm guessing you never heard of the company, John. Theranos. Uh, and began a series of articles culminating in the 2018, that is the current bestseller, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. And uh, I think I'm not giving it uh, anything away to say it really is a page turner. It is. It is totally riveting for me. I read it on the Kindle, so it was a. Sw- it was like swiping wildly. And when I started the book, John, um, I thought it was going to be a mystery story about an investigative reporter figuring out that something was fraudulent that no one had realized. And then I realized maybe 10 pages into the book, because at the very beginning, you tell that story about how they've got, you know, photocopies, I guess it was, of pictures of the um, results because the machine wasn't spitting out the right results. And then it turned to me that it occurred to me that the real mystery story that you're writing about here is how these folks got away with something that was fraudulent in in a deep sense from the very start. And I wonder kind of how you came to your hypotheses about how did this last as long as it did? How did they end up with $700 million in investor funding? Right. Actually, it was a billion dollars in all if you uh, look at the entirety of the money that was raised between 2004 and uh, 2015. And the uh, $700 million that the SEC talked about in its charges is the amount of money that was raised once really the bright red line was crossed into massive fraud, which was when she went live with her supposedly um, innovative finger stick tests in Walgreens stores in California and Arizona. And of course, we now know those tests were unreliable and not done on, for the most part on Theranos technology, but on hacked commercial analyzers. And she used that commercialization going live in the Walgreens stores in late 2013 to solicit new funding. And that's when that $750 million in extra money came in from but she, the- But she knew from the get-go that this machine wasn't doing what she thought it was supposed to do, right? 
Well, I mean, this is this is not a a Bernie Madoff uh, situation. She didn't drop out of Stanford in uh, late two thousand three, thinking and premeditating that she was going to defraud investors and and put patients in harm's way. You know, she dropped out with a vision for a device um, that you know she thought she could. Uh, implement and she went about raising money and, and hiring employees, firing a lot of employees as well. That, that was one of the, the big problems with the company's uh, its culture, its toxic culture. Um, and and I think her her grave mistake early on from the, the first days of Theranos was to channel Silicon Valley's culture. And when I say Silicon Valley, I think of the traditional Silicon Valley, which is the, you know, originally back in the 50s and 60s, it was the microprocessor industry, and then it became uh, personal computers, and then the internet revolution of the 90s, and now smartphone apps. Basically, Silicon Valley is computers. It's hardware and software. And from the beginning, there's been a uh, culture of fake it till you make it in Silicon Valley and a little bit of vaporware, which was actually a term coined in the in the early 80s. And, um, you know, some of the investors in Theranos, like like Larry Ellison, um, did, you know, they, they did that. They, they used that playbook of fake it till you make it. He often exaggerated what his Oracle software could do in the early days of the company and and would ship software, you know, that was even crawling with bugs that that his clients would have to help him debug. And I think she saw, you know, Larry Ellison, who is now, by the way, one of the richest people in the world, and Oracle is now, you know, an upstanding Fortune 100 company. She saw him. She saw Steve Jobs. And she thought they got away with it. It worked well for them. And so I'm going to do the same thing. But the thing she lost track of is her product was a medical product that was going to be used by doctors and patients to make very important life or death decisions. And it's not the same as... A smartphone app. I mean, one of the things that was stunning to me in the book is you, you make the point that when she tried to raise money from the kinds of venture capitalists who were involved in biomedical technology and everything, she didn't raise any money from them. She raised it elsewhere, that those people could all see early on that there were going to be problems here. So how did she raise the money from the other folks? I mean, well, what she, did she say to so, them? So again, the bulk of the money, $750 million approximately of the billion dollars was raised after uh, she went live with the blood tests in Walgreens stores, and she used that moment uh, going live with the technology to solicit new funding and to say to you know various billionaires in their family offices, you know Rupert Murdoch, Betsy DeVos, Carlos Slim, the Coxes, look, our product is available. It's commercial. You know, patients are going every day to to Walgreens stores in Palo Alto and in Arizona. And, and using our product, so of course it's real. And as a result, those investors didn't really do any due diligence because they figured surely Walgreens wouldn't be exposing its customers to harm and wouldn't have let Theranos go live with its product and its stores if it wasn't the real thing and if it didn't work. And so I think everyone trusted Walgreens to have done its homework, and Walgreens, it turns out, did not do its homework. And, and that's where I think uh, everyone you know, got duped. So take us to the point where Walgreens is doing blood tests for people. And what's wrong with a blood test? I mean, you go to Walgreens, you're going to do a blood test to you. What did they claim to do with the blood test, and what was really happening with those blood tests? 
Right. So Elizabeth's claim to fame when she started uh, becoming famous in Silicon Valley in 2014, 2015, was that she had invented a portable machine that could run uh, hundreds of blood tests off a tiny drop of blood pricked from the finger. And uh, this would have been a big advance in blood testing because no one had uh, cracked that nut yet. Uh, the reason being that, uh, for one thing, capillary blood is polluted with um, uh, tissue from, from cells and is considered less pure than venous blood. Uh, and, and that those tissues interfere with blood tests. And, and the other thing is that uh, there are about uh, four or five different big categories of blood tests. And each of those categories require completely different laboratory instruments and techniques. And so when you've done, say, a few tests from one category of blood tests, such as an immunoassay, uh, and you need to then do a couple of other blood tests from another category, such as general chemistry assays, you're done with the blood that you had if you're dealing with I mean, only just a tiny— that's why when you go to the doctor, they, give, they have the three little vials, right? That right. Sometimes it's actually—most yeah. often it's five. You give five vials of blood, and there's a reason for that. Uh, labs need a lot of blood, especially if the, if the test requisition is large. They need a lot of blood volume to do all those tests. So what she was purporting to have uh, invented was a breakthrough— so when she went live with the technology and two Walgreens stores in, in Northern California and then another 40 in Arizona, Theranos had a test menu of 250 tests and claimed that all of them could be done with this pinprick of blood. In reality, only a dozen or fewer of those 250 were done with a Theranos proprietary machine, which wasn't even the latest prototype. They, they had to uh, dust off uh, the second iteration of the technology because the latest prototype, which they called the Minilab, was nowhere near working. So they took the Edison off the shelf and they did 12 of those 250 tests with the Edison. And then every other test, 238-some tests, were done with just commercial analyzers that anyone could buy off the shelf from a company like Siemens. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with John Carreyrou from the Wall Street Journal about his book, Bad Blood. Joe? So, John, you were taking us to the point of clear fraud. They're saying they've got this great way to get your blood and test it, so you don't have to see all that blood leave your system, which makes people queasy. And it's just a pinprick. But actually, they couldn't do it with a pinprick, and they couldn't do the tests they thought. So what happened to the people that went to Walgreens and got their thumb pricked? What happened to those tests? So, so first of all, um, a large proportion of people went to Walgreens with test orders from their doctors and would find out there that um, they had to get a venous draw, which is what happened to me when I went to check out uh, – Theranos' product at a Walgreens in Arizona in Phoenix, um, you know, I showed up and, and uh, the, the uh, phlebotomist at that store asked me to, to uh, pull up my sleeve. And I said, well, isn't this supposed to be a finger prick? And she said, no, your test order requires a regular venous draw. So a lot of patients had regular venous okay. draws. And then, um, you know, somewhere between uh, 40 and 50% of patients did have finger stick tests. And a, a small, a tiny minority of those, the, the 12 that I was referring to earlier, were done with the Edison, 
which, by the way, was completely unreliable. Uh, Theranos's own data when regulators went in and inspected its lab showed that the Edison was completely unreliable. And then another bucket of about 80 tests that were done with the pinprick were actually, uh, once they got to the Theranos lab, diluted in a, a saline solution and run on Siemens machines because the Siemens machines were only uh, approved by the FDA and, and only able to run regular size samples. And so in order to accommodate the Siemens machine, they had to dilute the blood to create more volume. And, and that dilution, that by the way, the Siemens machine, like all blood analyzers, has a dilution protocol within it. So this was diluting the blood twice and diluting it once before it went into the Siemens machine where it was diluted again. And this double diluting created accuracy problems of its own. And, uh, you know, in the end, Theranos uh, voided close to a million blood test results. And I happen to know from former employees that um, the last lab director that Elizabeth Holmes hired to try to clean up the mess was lobbying her to uh, void many more blood tests than she did. And so uh, probably several million blood test results that Theranos put out over a two and a half year period were completely unreliable. So it's not just that their machine didn't work and they had to use an existing machine, and she lied about that, but there were millions of blood tests that gave people the wrong medical advice, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, and in, in the book you talk about, you know, some people were told they had super high levels of things that they didn't have high levels of and they would have been put on drugs for that. And other people were told they were perfectly fine when they had serious problems. Right. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal about, about his book, Bad Blood. Joe? John, I want to change the focus a little bit to how she fooled investors and what happened to those poor patients to the role of lawyers here. Because the lawyers are playing a key role in the book, and they're using something called non-disclosure agreements to stop whistleblowers. Tell us a little bit about that. In my own reporting of, of the first story and uncovering this scandal, NDAs were perhaps the, the greatest obstacle to overcome. Um, you know, the, the former employees who... Uh, spoke to me uh, would only do so if I promised them confidentiality because they were scared to death of uh, being accused by Theranos of, of breaching their non-disclosure agreements and being taken to court. And Elizabeth Holmes had a track record of being litigious. She'd proven she was willing to, to sue ex-employees. She'd done it in the early days of the company when she had sued three ex-employees, accusing them of stealing trade secrets. And then in 2011, she had sued her ex-neighbor, uh, this guy Richard Fuse over a patent, and she had steamrolled him with the help of her uh, famous lawyer David Boys, and so um, you know employees were uh, that the NDAs were like handcuffs. Yeah, they were worried, and did she use them against the employees? The employees now come to you, they say, "I think something's wrong," and they start talking to you. They've signed these non-disclosure agreements. What do her lawyers do with respect right. to so, those employees? So the lawyers, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of, of, of a particular set of lawyers uh, employed by the law firm Boys Schiller Flexner, David Boys's law firm, uh, figured out who some of my confidential sources were and went after them. Um, and that gave rise to one of the most uh, surreal scenes and moments in the book when uh, – Two uh, lawyers for Boy Schiller Flexner are hiding upstairs 
at George Schultz's house just off the Stanford campus, not far from here. Um, George Schultz, the, of course, the former Secretary of State under, under Ronald Reagan, um, considered you know one of the greatest statesmen, uh, perhaps of uh, the 20th century. Uh, and his uh, grandson, Tyler Schultz, had happened to work at Theranos for eight months, and during that stint, uh, been convinced that the company was a fraud. Uh, later, when I had started investigating the company, he and I had connected, and he had become a, a corroborating source for me. And uh, Theranos had figured out that he was one of my sources. And on this evening, I think it was late May 2015, they posted two uh, Boy Schiller attorneys upstairs at, at uh, Grandpa Schultz's house. And Tyler came over after dinner to talk to his grandfather um, because his grandfather had relayed the message that, that Theranos wanted him to come to Theranos headquarters the next day and, and talk to its lawyers. And Tyler had called his grandfather and said, before I do that, can we meet tonight without lawyers? And George had agreed. And so Tyler walks in the house and he has a, a brief conversation with his grandfather and his step-grandmother. And then his grandfather says, you know, there are two lawyers for Theranos upstairs. Can, can I bring them down? And, and Tyler had to say yes, because if he he felt that if he tried to get out of that, that moment, they would suspect him even more. And at that point come down, these two lawyers, Meredith Dearborn and Mike Brill, and Mike Brill uh, pretty much goes after Tyler like an attack dog and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, tells him he has to confess that uh, they, they know he's talking to me. They know he's talking to a Wall Street Journal reporter and he must confess it and he must sign a statement um, uh, recanting his comments. They also give him a, an order to appear in court. And, and uh, you know, uh, against all odds, Tyler withstands this immense pressure. Uh, by the way, the, the scene sort of, uh, it doesn't end that night. There's another meeting the next morning again at the house. And Tyler ends up getting his own legal representation. And, and then over the course of several more months behind the scenes, has to withstand this pressure, never agrees to sign anything that the company is, is putting to him uh, to sign. And in large part, thanks to Tyler Schultz, I was able to go to press with my first story in October 2015. We'll be back with more from our guest, John Carreyrou, talking about his book, Bad Blood and the Theranos Scandal, next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. John, right before the break, we had Tyler Schultz being confronted by lawyers from a law firm, and he's got to spend a lot of money defending himself. What are they threatening him with? What, what are they saying is going to happen to him? They're threatening him uh, with a lawsuit. They're telling him they're going to take him to court for violating his uh, non-disclosure agreement and his confidentiality obligations and for leaking uh, trade secrets uh, to the journal. That, that's what happens that night and then the, the next morning at uh, George Schultz's house. Um, and those, those threats, uh, which culminated at one point in, in one of the lawyers, boys, uh, one of the boys Schiller lawyers, Mike Brill, uh, threatening to bankrupt Tyler's entire family if Tyler didn't cave and sign the documents they wanted to, to sign. Um, that, th those threats uh, continued for months, 
until finally uh, I published my first story in, in the journal. So one of the things that I found striking in the book is generally the lawyers for a company owe a fiduciary duty to the board of directors and the like to tell them if they discover a fraud inside the company. And instead of doing that, these lawyers seemed hell-bent on just suppressing any evidence uh, of the fraud. Uh, And part of the story you tell in the book has to do with how these lawyers are being paid. That is, usually when you hire high-priced lawyers, you pay them by the hour, and they don't have a stake in perpetuating a fraud. They have a stake in making sure the board of directors is properly is properly informed about any problems inside the company. But you're telling a very different story here, right? So uh, she had Elizabeth Holmes had sued her ex neighbor, guy named Richard Fuse, over a patent. That litigation had uh, taken place over the course of two and a half years and ended uh, in 2013, early 2014, I think. And uh, Boyce Schiller, uh, David Boyce's law firm, had been compensated for its work in that litigation in shares, in Theranos shares. And uh, by the time I came around and started digging into Theranos in early 2015, Boyce Schiller was sitting on $5 million worth of shares. And if the, and if the fraud is exposed, it's not $5 million worth of shares anymore. It's zero. And so when I learned about this uh, later, I thought it was a huge conflict of interest and I thought it made – you know, it clearly, um, you know, in my mind spelled that uh, David Boyce had become more than just a legal advocate for, for Theranos. Uh, he had a financial stake. He, he had uh, skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, but apparently uh, the bar doesn't consider this problematic. I think it's a very different world out here than it is, for example, with New York law firms, which generally don't take positions. Yeah, in their I think clients. here it's common for the Silicon Valley firms to take positions, and what they'll say is, "Well, that gives us removes the so-called principal agent problem. Now we're really working for you, the company. We're not going to run up the fees. We're all in this together." This is a downside of it, and. Uh, Uh, I think people are going to be talking about the compensation here as an issue. And I think another issue, John, is what what does this say to the attorney for a firm? You're an outside counsel to a firm. The firm comes to you and they say, you know, we have thousands of employees and one of them really has a personality issue. He's not very good. We'd like to fire him. And now he's going to leak all these secrets. He's not going to do it to the government. He's going to do it to some newspaper reporter. It really will help our competitors because they're going to learn the roadmap of what isn't working for us. What do you do as the outside lawyer? Where do you draw the line? I mean, I think in the, in the case of a situation like Theranos, you draw the line simply at you know uh, z- zealously representing your client without uh, crossing the line into uh, behaving like thugs. Um, and and uh, you know David Boyes has has uh, taken umbrage to to uh, my use of the word thug. Uh, in fact, he mentioned it in a, in a uh, interview with the New York Times two weeks ago, and and thought that um, that was over the top. And I actually stand by that term. I, I feel like uh, Boyes Schiller Flexner behaved as a law firm like thugs uh, in the way they, in particular, they treated Tyler uh, these these threats and these intimidation tactics. Um, and and uh, uh, Mike Brill, uh, the way he behaved at George Schultz's house, I feel goes beyond the duties of an attorney representing his clients. 
This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with John Carreyrou about his book, Bad Blood, which exposed the Theranos scandal. You know, John, lawyers always like to, to push people. I'm going to push you a little bit here. Uh, what What is a slippery slope? Would it have been okay for the law firm to say, you signed a non-disclosure agreement, we're not going to confront you in surprise at your uncle's house, but we will say that if you've leak to a reporter, we're going to regard that as violating the agreement, and we have a billion dollars of IP at stake, and we're going to defend it. I mean, what if they said that? Would that have been okay? Well, first of all, I would have, I would say, you know, uh, make sure that the IP is real, because in this case, it wasn't really real. They, Theranos had been working on technology for 12 years, but it didn't work. Yeah. The, the last product was the mini lab and it was a prototype that absolutely did not right. work and what they were protecting more than anything was the secret that most of the blood tests were being done on hacked Siemens analyzers which I had found out about so so first do your due diligence with your client and find out what the facts are and then when you go and 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 you uh, negotiate or or talk to uh, uh, the leaker or the ex-employee um, I think you can do it uh, in, a, in a diplomatic and professional manner, manner, and not um, threaten to bankrupt his family, and and not um, you know surprise him uh, at his grandfather's house, ambush him. I mean, I, that's what it was. It was an ambush. And one of the points you make also is that it wasn't just lawyers directly threatening people, but people were being followed and. Uh, and the like. And, the, and, and and that does seem to go far beyond what you would expect just lawyers who are zealously representing their company to do. Right. And you talk about being followed in, in Arizona. Right. I, I don't know for a fact that I was followed, but uh, Tyler and um, his friend, and who's also an ex-Theranos employee, Erica Chung, who's also a source of mine, uh, pretty much, you know, had evidence that they were being followed. I mean, Erica got ambushed at uh, the in the parking lot of her new employer, and the, the man who walked up to her with a letter from David Boyes had the address of her colleagues, and she'd only been staying at her colleagues for two weeks. Not even her mother knew she was staying there. So the only way to have known that address was to have followed her. And then later, when Tyler and I, uh, after he went uh, radio silent for a while, uh, met again on the Stanford campus in, in May 2016. Shortly thereafter, Theranos let it be known uh, to his attorneys that they knew we had met. So, I mean, that, that's, that's proof that, that they were followed. Whether I was followed, I'm not sure. But yes, I would agree, those, these tactics are extreme. We mentioned uh, a defense that David Boyce gave for himself in the New York Times. And uh, he says, hey, the system works best when we have zealous lawyers. And I'm guessing he would say, I can't do a separate investigation of a client that appears legit uh, about whether their science works. What did you think of the defense? I, I didn't find it credible. Um, and, and I especially didn't find credible his claim that he has a policy of never suing journalists or even threatening to sue journalists because I can tell you that I received several threatening letters from David Boyes, including one that was 23 pages long back in, in 2015. And I also know for a fact that um, uh, he and his law firm, Boyce Schiller, uh, drafted a 43-page complaint 
against me in the journal, a defamation lawsuit, and it has its name all over it, and he was pressing the company to file it. So that claim made in that New York Times story two weeks ago was simply a lie. Well, there's so much in this book that I think lawyers in particular are going to be interested in, though it's a bestseller, so it's not just lawyers. I'd predict it's going to be talked about in legal ethics and law school for a long time. So I want to thank you for being our guest here. Yeah, and I understand that um, Jennifer Lawrence is going to be playing Elizabeth Holmes in the movie version. Who do you want to play you? Uh, Currently, Vanessa Taylor who co-wrote The Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro is working on a screenplay. I've, uh, you know, mentioned when people have asked me in the past, I've said Mark Ruffalo because, uh, you know, he was great in Spotlight. um, And and Spotlight was a great movie about investigative journalism. So maybe he could be me in, in Bad Blood. Well, we look forward to that. And thank you for to our listeners for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121.